0: From an MNFS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today, we bring you London based insureTech Human secures its $10.1 million in funding to enable real time fleet insurance. Egypt insureTech startup Amenli closes 2.3 million seed round. And finally, Aviva reveals the quirkiest insurance claims in its 325 year history. It could be a long show, folks. All that and more <laughs> on today's show. Hello and welcome to InsurTech Insider, episode 103. I'm Nigel Walsh. Today's show is a new show where we'll be talking about the most interesting happenings in insurance and insurtech from the past few weeks. Joining me as always is Benjamin Enser, Director of Research at 11FS. How are you doing today, Benjamin?
1: I'm really well, thank you, Nigel. How are you?
0: I'm all right. I'm busier than a busy thing. It's hard to believe it's heading fast into Christmas, but I'm looking forward to it and... Um, Looking forward to the days getting lighter as well. Don't even get me to that point. It's 65 days to that point. Anyway, we are also accompanied by some amazing guests. First up, we have Susan Holliday, Senior Advisor at IFC. How are you doing today, Susan?
2: Uh, great, thank you. Um, I'm in Washington, D.C. It's a nice sunny day.
0: Would you know, Washington, D.C. is one of the only places I've not been to so far in the States that's on my absolute bucket list. So I'll be with some tips and tricks over the next few weeks. Absolutely. No, let me know. Can you tell us a little little bit more about you and your background and what IFC is?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So um, I've spent more than 30 years in the insurance industry. Um, Currently, one of my roles is I'm a senior advisor to the IFC and the IFC stands for International Finance Corporation. It's the private sector arm of the World Bank. Focused on uh, emerging markets. And amongst other things, I do some work for them um, on fintech um, and on things focused on um, women and um, insurance for SMEs. And then outside of that, I do some board and advisory work um, related to the insurance industry and the insure tech industry.
0: Fantastic. Sounds like we need a longer podcast, <laughs> I think. We are also joined by Mark Musson, founder of Human. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm
3: almost peaking, thanks, Nigel. It's uh, I'm in London. Bit of a when I say breeze, I mean like a 60 knot wind blowing outside. But um, we're all good. Um, managed, the building's still standing, and and it's great to be here. So no quirky claims coming from you, is what you're saying. Oh, we, I've got some really interesting ones, actually, we can talk about that later. <laughs> we, we always hope for zero claims, but that's not reality, is it?
0: No, not at all. I look forward to it. I generally look forward to it. So uh, I will say, in honour of Sarah, I hope she's still listening, it was a freakishly warm 18 degrees at six o'clock this morning. I just don't understand what's going on with the British weather. But there we are. Let's get started with the show. So first up, London-based InsurTech HUMAN secures £10.1 million in funding to enable real-time fleet insurance. The funding was led by BXR Group and Shell Ventures, as well as Hambro Perks, Leaders in Fund and Woodside Holdings. HUMAN aims to further develop its unique insurance data capabilities and expand the commercial functions of the business, as well as expanding across Europe next year. Founded in 2018, HUMAN set out to disrupt traditional motor and fleet insurance. Consolidating the traditionally separate categories of fleet insurance and risk management, it has built a solution that provides fleets with unparalleled transparency. I feel we are overly qualified to pass to you, Mark, on this one today. <laughs> Can you tell us more about it and uh, how you've got to this spot?
3: Yeah, it's it's been it's been an interesting four years. We, we actually started out with nothing to do with insurance and um, because I'm kind of unemployable in the corporate environment but spent a lot of many years building trading systems, sort of post-trade settlement, um, custody and fund administration, where you're dealing with massively complex data problems and uh, building systems that can make sense of all of that and then make decisions off the basis of the sense it's making. And um, as I've been here in London for 12 years and it was time to find a way to be gainfully employed by myself again, rather than someone else. And so the original sort of plan was to was to find an area with loads and loads of data, very interesting problems to solve, and not many solutions present at that point in time. And I, I got really enamored with the whole autonomous vehicle environment, and it sort of really captured my imagination. And it's it struck me as being something that's interesting and potentially solves a lot of problems, but also potentially has a long way to go. So the kind of The initial exploration was, well, can I build a platform that holds a real-time copy of of vehicles? And then can we use that data to do something? And that's something, the original idea was, well, we can build training data sets for the algorithm developers for those autonomous vehicle builders. So the way the platform's built is to have this very, very, very fine-grained, contextualized view in order to generate enough interesting events to be able to train machine learning algorithms in, in that sort of environment. But the second problem to solve was, well, how do you get, and at that stage, McKinsey, uh, McKinsey I think it was McKinsey, let, let's just call it McKinsey, and had out this number of a billion miles of driving data required before you could reach level five autonomy. And obviously it's, you know, not a real number because it doesn't really come from any knowledge of anything. But it, that also captured our imagination. We said, well, well, if, if you need a billion, billion miles, how are you going to get them? And um, through a very, various sort of, I guess the, the random walk around figuring this out we, we started working with um with a company that has about 300 Toyota Priuses leases to Uber drivers on a weekly basis and they do 60,000 miles per vehicle and boom there you go that was the solution so we struck a deal with that fleet uh, to collect all of the data and the only thing we had to do was solve the insurance problem which was seemed like a fairly easy thing to do at the time but um, we'll just, just- just to find the insurance problem. What do you mean by the insurance problem? Well, it's a commercial... This is the thing, right? So it's, it's a commercial fleet policy. And um, the average sort of tenure of a driver is about a month max. So they don't really care if there's a dent in the bumper and things like that. The mileage is 60,000, as I said, per vehicle, super high. They are taxis and they drive around London. So that's probably the most uninsurable proposition ever.
1: You've, you've been to, to um, certain other cities in Europe, right? Or yeah. in America, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in Africa, you know. Um, <laughs> it seemed pretty tame to me at the time, but apparently it's not. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, and and so, so unpicking the it seemed to me, oh, well, this is really easy. And then it turned out to be really difficult and to, to Redux the whole thing. We, we ended up looking at um, things from a slightly different viewpoint and understanding, look, we have every single moment of, of every single vehicle and um, underneath, because of what we wanted to do, we built a, at that stage a fairly rudimentary, but a pretty decent geospatial risk model underneath it as well. And things just kind of grew from there. And, and we ended up saying, we initially me, but then as we built the team slowly saying, well, I understand how um, a trade works, you have some events floating around, there are algorithms that notice changes. Uh, These changes can be attributed to a a change in some form of state in this instance, exposure, and that has a different price. That seemed pretty logical and easy to me to to figure this out. So we built that and then started speaking to the large composite saying, look at this amazing thing we've built, you really need this, you can build products on top of it. And the feedback we got from the market was, it's amazing. Um, I have no idea how I would use it. And every time we had that sort of conversation, started building out an example of, well, maybe it's a bit like this. And after a year of doing that, ended up going, do you know what? We've built the insurance company on top of the data platform, so that's what we may as well be. And so last year was the culmination of going through our FCA regulation process, finding insurance capacity, building the product out for real and launching it. So in a very kind of convoluted way, that's how we arrived at. We didn't set out to solve... fleet insurance problem but we found an interesting way to do it
0: it's a fascinating view and actually the journey you've just taken us on from solving problems to getting regulated yourself is very similar to what we've seen in other insurtechs but actually fintechs before us where fintechs got tired of dealing with some of the traditional incumbents that were moving too slow and so we can go quicker and be more agile and 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 elsewhere yeah there's two things that i that you've said that i'm really intrigued by number one is Raising money during a pandemic, I'd be keen to get your experience mm. uh, and mm. share that, how that was different or how that would be perceived differently, harder, easier, or or just yeah. maybe, maybe just different, uh, given what we've gone through the last two years. And number two, of course, is, you know, you talk about taking guesswork out of the equation here and the use of AI. Yeah. So I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. So t- tell us yeah. more about the process of raising money during a pandemic I mean it's a very, you have to be very intentional about it um
3: and by that you just need to treat it as as uh, kind of as, as a project and and really dig into it and kind of the way you develop products and Segment. Be very careful about segmenting out all of the investors. Build a decent CRM before you reach out to anyone. Understand who's writing checks, who isn't writing checks, what stage their funds at, um, how how deployed are they, do they have uh, firepower at that stage to deploy, are they writing into the sector, at what stage are they, and at what stage are you? Like, don't approach a Series A fund at seed and don't get seed funds to write anything into your Series A, and there's the reasons for that. But yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I've been. Look, it's it's not my first sort of company at all. When I was in South Africa, I started and uh, built and sold five companies prior. A very different environment, uh, much more entrepreneurial, much looser. So it's much more formal in London. But, um, and I learned a lot during that process, to, down to the point of you really are segmenting everyone down to the ones you really want mm-hmm. uh, and then a selling. And then, once and then to, to sort of the flip side of coming out of that is once you've done the job really well once and, um, with the, I think, um, you know, for this last round we've just closed now, um, literally we didn't take outside money. We, we got offers from outside money and we didn't take it. We stuck with our ins- existing investors um, with one new fund from Hambros. Um, we could treat, you can treat them pretty much as a new investor, but they sort of been watching from the sidelines. So they do have the inside information. And there, the, the, the I guess the, um, the lesson there is, you know, be clear about your plan, execute your plan, If anything changes and and it is always going to change when you're doing these things make sure everyone's 100 informed and and never ever ever let them have any surprises good news or bad news always share it no surprises and that way people back you and support you you know and that's the key thing interesting
0: really interesting susan you're, you're straight back from the wonderful itc that i was frustrated to miss out on and it sounded like a great event and actually i believe you were doing a number of panels, one on AI and auto. Is this something that you saw lots of on in Vegas a few weeks back? Yeah. So I, I
2: should get some kind of award because I've been at ITC every single year, um, either in person or last year uh, or last year virtually, and on panels every year except the first one. Um, ye- it always bothers me a bit about ITC when you see loads and loads of kind of stands of companies in that exhibition hall that look like they're doing nearly the nearly the same thing, right? Um, so yes, um a lot of focus um a lot of focus on AI in general and quite a lot of focus on claims, which is probably a good thing because process still needs to be improved. Um, and what I would say is that some of the companies or offerings um are kind of becoming more mature. It's not just kind of bullshit, but but um they're actually kind of like scaling and really being um really being implemented. So I was quite impressed. I sat on a panel with um, someone from Google and um, someone from um, Salera, which is a software company that works with the insurance industry and the automotive industry. I'm on their advisory board, and um, you know there are some um, th- there are some good things going on. So I think it's it's starting to reach kind of proper. Proper deployment, not just kind of at scale, right? Not just talking about it, um, which is a good thing. And there are some interesting ancillary—just to throw this one because I really like it—interesting ancillary things. Um, for example, um, they can help with um finding parts um that can be reused if you have a very new vehicle that's maybe been involved in an accident or something. Um, the whole kind of green parts thing. And I think that's a kind of like nice add-on that could be attractive to um, the automotive sector, to insurers, but actually to to consumers um, as well and can be also relevant to the fleets that we we heard about earlier.
0: It really is fascinating. The other thing that I've seen over the years, and and Benjamin, you may see the same, is the shift almost from personal auto to commercial auto has been really interesting given this, I think the complexity is probably similar or on par but actually the 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 management of said complexity is probably easier with a fleet or commercial fleet than it is individual basis So, Benjamin, I don't know if you've seen much in that space. I know the competition here, Mark, to to your world, is actually quite intensive as well. So I don't know know who wants to go first on that quickly.
1: Well, I'll just touch on it quickly. I I agree, actually. I think it's a really, really interesting area because I think the fleet owners have a real incentive to try and drive down their insurance costs. And, of course, this isn't a zero-sum game, right? This is a positive-sum game because if you can get drivers to drive more carefully, you reduce risk and you reduce accidents, you reduce claims, and the insurance costs go down or the whole costs go down for everyone. So I think the the impact of InsurTech on fleet insurance is huge because there are fleets all around that are significantly driving down their costs by teaching drivers who are employees to drive more carefully. And I was very interested, Mark, to see some of the statistics coming out of Human about how you've managed to help customers drive down their claims costs. So I think it's a fascinating area. And uh, Nigel, I think you're right.
3: I think it's tough. Um, and and um, when you start unpacking it you're dealing with employees at the end of the chain you know that's the point of exposure your point of exposure is all these vehicles driving around on the road and um, within the fleet themselves i mean it's so varied it's not a homogeneous customer you know um, you have from the smaller ones who have zero risk management um, possibly the same person who's the owner the risk manager the insurance buyer etc through to bigger ones where the person buying the insurance is generally your FD. And there is some form of risk manager who, and their interests are vaguely aligned, but, but not. And then the challenge always is that you're trying to, you're trying to manage the behavior um, of an individual driver. But here's the really curious thing so the way our stack works is it's we own the ip top to bottom side to side end to end we don't rely on telematic service providers for scoring or anything so all of the behavioral scoring all of the event detection all of the geospatial risk is our own ip and so therefore our pricing model we can price on every single one of one of those factors rating factors and we can do it reliably regardless of the source of the data because it's normalized and goes through our algorithms we're not trying to do 20 different things so there's a score of five you know, from that system, the same as a score of three from that. None of that. And in reality, what we, um, when it comes down to it, when we look at our pricing model, the actual driving behaviour drives around about twenty percent of the actual rating factor. So that's one thing, uh, and that's interesting, and that's science, not opinion. Um, most of it's about the geospatial risk model that we've built. Um, the real-time changes in that environment, um, and then um, we also work on well. I, without saying too much, it, it isn't sort of we don't do we don't do sort of threshold-based event detection and say oh the, you know harsh braking is bad. Uh, and typically, that's what you'll hear in this environment is if you can bring down harsh braking, you can save X amount of money. And this is this is not true. Um, and then also because they're commercial fleets, you can't say well um, you know if you don't drive at this time of day. Um, or you take a different route, then, then it'll be cheaper for you. All we're doing is saying, this is the cost, and our pricing model will work out um, for each trip. We we have a component which has, you know, a fairly well-understood principle of a swing on it, which is a, a loading or a discount based on that exposure.
0: You're leaving us all intrigued here, and not to sound like an advert of a human, but you're, but what you've basically said is less guesswork, uh, which is fantastic. So, look, congratulations again on the raise. It's outstanding, specifically in this environment. And in a super interesting area that I can only think is going to get more and more exciting as we see more move from personal to fleet going forward. Definitely. So congrats. Thank you. Benjamin, with that, it's over to you.
1: Thank you. So our next story is um, about Egyptian insurtech startup Amenly, which has closed a $2.3 million seed round. This story was reported in Tech in Africa, TechCrunch and various other media. So... YC-backed startup Amenly has attracted 2.3 million uh, in seed insurance to provide insurance services to Egyptians. The company was founded by Omar Ezzeldin, Shady El Tofa, and Adam Nauman and I apologize if I've mispronounced those, which I'm sure I have. Um, The untapped insurance market in Egypt is valued at something like $2 billion uh, and mainly is targeting Egypt's 50 million adults in the middle income pool who are not well insured today. Um, Before starting this startup, the founders had founded a previous fintech called Paymob. Susan, I'd like to come to you first on this one. We're we're really starting to see a little bit of a boom in InsurTech in Africa. Um, What do you think are the things that are driving that? What's what's driving these these startups and investment in these businesses?
2: So I think it's interesting because you do actually see some different types of founders um, in Africa. And um, much to my delight, I I see more women actually, um, which is a a great thing. So I think actually it ties a little bit to something Mark said earlier about kind of like incumbents being kind of slow to embrace new things and the kind of not invented here syndrome. And, um, you know, the challenge clearly in Africa is that people don't know about insurance, don't, don't kind of understand it, don't really necessarily see the value, but the flip side of that is there's kind of like a blank sheet of paper. And also everyone goes on about leapfrogging and all the rest of it. But um, you know, Empesa is a hell of a lot better than the banking that we have, certainly in the US. Well, I moved here from London um more than just more than five years ago, and I cannot believe that financial services is so is so old-fashioned. So um you know you do have the chance to go to not just kind of digital first but digital only right and and all this um and all this type of thing, and the markets are attractive because of the huge protection gap and like the there are countries like Egypt that had huge populations um the pr- the problem is, as I mentioned before, first of all, kind of lack of familiarity um, with even the concept of insurance. It's not like in um, you know in Western Europe or the US where you know you you buy a car or you rent a flat or whatever, and you kind of have to have insurance, and w- whether you whether you like it or not. And um, the other thing is, when we're talking about partnering with incumbents, this is a bit of a generalization that's slightly unfair, but on the whole, believe it or not their systems are kind of like even worse than the ones in Europe. So a lot of them literally, I mean, I went to see a company once um, in Africa where the, the server was um, kind of like at the company's office, but it was like next to the parking garage. And um, they, were try, they were trying to like market insurance on Facebook. And I'm like, well, that doesn't work anyway. But, um, you know, we feel that you have some more basic things to fix because we think your server might like get blown up. Um, and, um, you know, they were sending backups to the bank every week in armored vans, which really, really got hijacked and all this kind of stuff. So it's quite tricky sometimes to kind of find partners and it's really tricky to get to scale. There's loads and loads of really cool ideas in Africa, but not many of them, partly because they're, they're newer in terms of when they were founded than, than the ones we're seeing in US and Europe, but not many of them have really got to scale. And then just the final thing what is kind of like cheap and mass market for us is not cheap or mass market um, in most of those countries. So I'm actually pleased um, that you mentioned that they're focusing on quote unquote middle income, because everyone was chasing this kind of trendy bottom of the pyramid, blah, blah, blah. And um, I I just don't think that's a, a viable business model. And unless you're really relying on kind of like donor funding. So there's a few things going on, kind of positive, um, positive and negative, but I, I have seen quite a few interesting startups over the last few years coming out of Africa.
1: Definitely. I thought one of the really interesting things about this story is that part, one of their objectives is to sort of build partnerships with consumers so that consumers can get instant quotations and access to lots of different policies. So not only is this about you know, getting access to insurance at all, but it's also about encouraging sort of more comparisons and so on. In, in Nigel, I know you've sort of had a, at the, one of the previous episodes of InsureTech Insider, you were talking about InsureTech in Africa and so on. Do you do you agree with Susan's perspective on some of the challenges of, of making InsureTech successful in the continent?
0: Yeah, I, I, I do. And I, and I was delighted to learn from Lamy and others that we had on um, one of the previous shows about the Cadogan economy and the small side of things. I think the sheer scale and the size of the opportunity is huge. And I agree, we've got we've got to start moving up from the entry level, or we called it nano insurance last time, all the way up into this middle income bracket. But you 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 mentioned a point that's true in every single facet of society, and that's education. How do we educate you on what you need, what you should have, and what's nice to have? And I'm not sure there's a single Stone unturned across the globe, where we are constantly on this battle to help people understand if they have some money, what they should do, what's nice to have, and what they must have and getting that is is just absolutely critical, I think uh, wherever we go and, and and enabling that then is the next challenge but we yeah we learned we learned last time from from Lamy and others about how they're actually making this come true.
2: I agree about education, one of the challenges. I think it though know, is, and I'm kind of biting the hand that's fed me for over 30 years here, but insurance tends to come from, you know, we have this great product and if you don't buy it, you're an idiot, right? And I would make two comments. One is some of the products are great, but some are not that great because they were invented 100 or 50 years ago when society was very different um, from what it is now and the assumption that kind of you know if you don't buy it you're wrong is it may not the person may be making a perfectly rational decision so i do think that we need to look at the kind of overall risks and i've done some work on this particularly for women and smes in some emerging markets that they're facing and as you mentioned nigel what are the various tools that you can deploy to kind of like manage and mitigate those those risks and quote-unquote insurance is is one of those but there are there are others as well, but unless the offering is actually dealing with the real risks that people are facing, then it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense, and it's it's not going to scale. And as I say, a lot of the things I think were kind of. Um, invented a long time ago or focused on very different family and societal situations um and that they're not really helping so i'm glad to see some of these startups are kind of um focusing on yeah different types of different types of products and kind of um you know, almost like a bundled approach of what we would call insurance with, with other things as well.
1: I'm conscious that we've got three British people talking about Africa with a, with a proper African on the call. <laughs> Mark, uh, as I think, I, I believe you were born in South Africa. Have you, obviously there are big challenges in distributing uh, insurance across Africa. Have you seen interesting approaches in in the market that or in African markets that you want to share?
3: I think it depends on, on where. I mean, where I'm from, South Africa is, is a very sophisticated market. And actually from an insurance perspective, also very sophisticated market but um I, yeah i think um well there are a couple, couple of things so one's sort of africa related one isn't some while back in 2009 i did a year's worth of work with the african development bank working on some of their challenges and and what was really interesting to me was that measurement of impact and i think you you kind of have to think about it in those terms and um, i was helping them with amongst other things getting the data and the analytics together to figure out what impact looked like for the for, for African Development Bank. And it's, it's a really, I think it's a good sort of way to frame the problem because what ADB does, um, I'm sure Susan, you'll be familiar, you know, particularly given your, your current, um, I guess, involvement um, is that either through grant funding or project funding um, funds, development initiatives throughout Africa and they're very driven towards the Millennium Development Goals, and, and a big chunk of these are, you know, how do you demonstrate and to how do you align to one or more of Millennium Development Goals, and the great example, um, and actually the person I worked with there was is um, was a most amazing person called Ellen Gottstein, and she came from the World Bank at that stage, and um, she redid the entire analytics framework and. At, the, at that stage, they were kind of going, well, the cost per kilometer of roads, for example, things like that, those are the KPIs that they were measuring from an impact perspective. And she put in place a program um, to, the good example was if you're building a school in a community, um, then what they wanted to do was rather than will it cost, you know, uh, 50p per brick or whatever, was do a long-term study of following everyone that in the community that went through that school and what happened to them afterwards, in terms of improvement of of their lives, you know, did they end up in a university somewhere, et cetera, et cetera? And to cut a to cut a short story very long, which is what I'm doing right now, is you can't actually take, as you said, you know, um, the three or four westernised, uh, three three British and one sort of super westernised person and um, understand uh, how, how you're making a difference. Now, in the African context, actually there's self-insurance and, and collectives. And, and that is that is how people protect themselves uh, in reality. Um, and generally, they don't need help from companies to monetize that process. And that's actually an interesting thought to think about. In South Africa, there are collector savings initiatives called stock fells. And what happens with those is uh, people pool their money and then someone gets a loan, and then when they've paid that back, the next person can take that loan and uh, and do something with it. So there's that community pressure. Everyone lives in the same area. Everyone's making sure no one's going to default on the loan. So there's almost zero default from very poor people, zero default, etc. And I, these these sorts of structures were the inspiration for Grameen Bank. I'm not sure if you're familiar with with that and that whole sort of microfinance environment and the products that. That come out of that, they don't look like anything that we could imagine. And I I think that would be my take. And I think also to touch on something, you know, Susan said is is in PESA and I know the guys that um, built the systems that did that. There is this leapfrogging thing, but it's not what you think um, because of the lack of infrastructure. So there is no banking infrastructure, but there's huge mobile phone penetration. uh, No one has a bank account. Back in, you know, the 2000 and you, let's say the millennium digital wallets were created which are operated via sms and effectively that's where mpesa started so that it's 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 not an environment you really do need to be on the ground you need to have the cultural context and you need to understand what are the need is before you can go and imagine solutions and so therefore typically what I would say is, you never see those solutions coming out of London or anywhere like that. If, you know, if I I've, the product that I've built doesn't translate into um, the South African environment, uh, there's a huge need for fleet insurance. But the product I've built doesn't translate, for example. But I know that, so it's not a market that we're going to go and tackle. I don't know what the answer is, but that's my view.
1: I think it's great that we're seeing you know, African insurtechs getting funding to grow uh, the insurance market in the, all the various different diverse African countries. And I'm, I'm acutely conscious that Africa is a vast and diverse continent. And um... However, if you want to dive more into the topic, our last episode covered all things cross-African uh, insurtech with some amazing guests from LAMI and Resolution Insurance Kenya. So don't forget to check that one out. For now, we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back very soon.
3: Introducing the Truly Digital Manifesto. If you're not truly digital already, well, you're missing out on a massive opportunity. Faster processes, more customer value, and higher revenues. It's not the future, it's already happening. So how do you measure up? Head over to trulydigital11 to see what it really means to be truly digital.
0: Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So next up, we have a firm favorite of ours. German InsurTech startup GetSafe adds $63 million to its Series B. This from TechCrunch. Uh, GetSafe has extended its Series B round that it previously announced in December 2020. So only a few months later, in addition to its original Series B of 30 million, the company is adding a further 63 million in fresh capital. Overall, GetSafe has raised 93 million Series B round. That's a huge number now. And actually, I'm delighted to see these sorts of numbers in comparison to some of our friends across the pond in North America. Investors in today's funding round include unnamed family offices, as well as Early Bird and Abacon Capital. Some of the company's existing investors, such as Commerce Ventures and Swiss Re, are also investing in the company once again. The service is now active in two markets, Germany, as well as in the UK, and while GetSafe has more of the customers in its home market, the company's metrics are going up and up. GetSafe currently has around 225,000 customers in Germany and 25,000 customers here in London. Where do we start on this one, folks? It's great to see, I guess, am I allowed to call it a double dip or going back again for extra funding? Mark, having just raised money, why would you go back and get money again so soon after the first raise? Is that. Is that normal in this instance? Yeah, I think, I mean, well, yes, I think absolutely
3: it's normal, Um, it depends. And I think there there are a couple of things driving it. There's there's a lot of capital looking for homes at this stage. And um, some of it's halo effect, um, success begets success. I think that, um, you know, it depends on plans. I have no idea what they're planning to do with the capital. Um, we're looking to put out a note right now. We have um, a plan to extend this round we've just raised. For example, we have a particular, it's all going to be invested in growth. Um, can't really say how yet, but it, it depends. I think it's a good time to, to be raising money right now. Um, if you have credible, strong plans, then the capital's available. I do think in a way that there's a lot of pressure to take more money, and we had to resist this in our last round. It's almost... 100 percent oversubscribed, and the challenge to that if it's a price round is you end up you know doing a massive amount of dilution so often the pattern that i'm seeing is that after the round there's a lot of money raised on a cln which is just basically a discount to the next round um, which means that you're not really managing that dilution and so you can take the extra capital so from our perspective of the round that we've just raised now we we capped it off and, and and we took half of the amount of money that was available because of the valuation at this stage, um, you know, we're still developing. And so therefore the dilution would have been excessive to take more money. And that was as much as we had plans to spend uh, at that point in time. We further developed those plans. Um, and now there's the opportunity to take fresh capital, which is non-dilutive uh, combination of venture debt as well as um, convertible loan notes. So that would generally be the scenario. I- I'd speak totally out of turn. That's And just so that's our scenario right now. And I think you'll find that that's, generally representative of of why fresh capital would be coming into a company. I'm sure they've got great plans to spend that on growth and people are really
0: expensive and you need a lot of them. Mm, I I think you've touched on a few things there. I'm fascinated by your comment around there being, I I don't want to say an abundance of cash out there, but it does feel right now that quarter on quarter, we keep hitting new records for funds invested in insurtech again at later stages. This is almost emblematic of that in the first instance, but actually the fact that there's more money out there and a desire to do things is fascinating. So I'm, I'm I'm pleased and encouraged to see that. I think Benjamin mentioned earlier about um, the maturity of some of these pieces uh, or the maturity of the market as well, which is fascinating. I, I equate it to saying
3: we're at sort of uh, three years ago's FinTech stage now with InsurTech, really. The tech applied solutions to an intractable problem are are, are clear, the theses are not relatively clear and, and we're just fast following FinTech, I would say. So if you if you had to say what's going to happen next, just look at what happened to fintech over the last few years.
0: Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll go faster and learn by their mistakes as well. I'm not saying they've made any mistakes, but maybe we'll learn by mistakes as well. Talking about fintech, a good segue is one of the things that GetSafe believes is that they the best way to sell insurance is through a direct relationship with its end customers. Now, Susan, you mentioned the maturity of the market in the US where you are right now, and obviously knowing the UK market too. Um, The mobile app today acts as a key part of the company's product offering as you can buy new insurance products, manage existing contracts and so much more. Do do you agree with that approach? Is that applicable in all markets? I know they're only Germany and UK today. Can you see the same working in North America as a a route to engaging customers app only? I think it depends on the segment. For us, it's very much not a thing because because we are
3: commercial. But in, in personal lines, yeah, sorry, Susan, over to you.
2: No, no, no problem because you're B2B. So I think, um, so it depends on the line, but more it depends on the customer. So a source of sadness and disappointment to me is that I'm used to uh, many companies still have agents for personal lines in the US, which for me makes absolutely no sense. And I do not want to talk to them. Um, and I, I, I had to once, and I did explain that, you know I was an MD at Swiss Re and then the conversation became pretty short, which was a good outcome for both parties. So I think the answer is yes because um, when you talk about kind of next generation or whatever, right? People are doing everything on their on their mobile phones, and also to be honest, calling up agents and stuff is a pain in the neck, right? Because they can't work 24 hours a day and all the rest of it. Um, but there is a bit like we talked about the incumbent systems earlier on in Africa. There is an existing infrastructure. And quite frankly, I think the US insurers should be much more radical at looking at their business models. That They keep trying to justify why agents are a good idea, and I think they're not. Ironically, in Africa, I think a different model of agents actually is valid, because people don't know how to kind of do everything on their own, necessarily on their mobile phone. They need kind of help setting it up initially and how to get the whole thing to work and all the rest of it. So it's kind of funny that we have all these agents where we don't need them. And you, I think the sort of what I would call the digitally enabled agent who can help people to get set up I help people who only have one phone in their entire family for six people or whatever, it is actually a a good
0: model in some of the developing countries. It's an amazing segue, almost like you've read the notes, but it's an amazing segue to one of their, or their primary market, I guess, in Germany, if you you compare them to WeFox, who actually partners with 700 agents and 5,000 associate brokers who they distribute WeFox products to their own customers. So... Benjamin, one for you, is it actually a regional thing to Susan's point that you see here? Because I'm, you know, now that I'm leaning heavily into the North American market, I'm semi with Susan here going, I don't understand why these folks are here. And maybe to to Mark's point, we're a few years behind fintech, but maybe the geographies are in different ways. And is there, again, back to the not liking the word leapfrog, but is there a way to skip some of this and go actually? Agents absolutely have their place for certain things where we need to educate, understand, or give you confidence. But if it's a straightforward commodity product, we should be able to do it all digitally. Completely.
1: Consumers are very habitual, right? So people are used to buying insurance in particular ways in particular countries, and they continue to do those things until they stumble across a better way of doing it. Uh, Obviously, younger consumers are more open to change because they haven't formed those habits. So you do have this sort of history of agent-based distribution in the United States and in some European markets like Italy and and to some extent in Germany. What I think is really interesting about, actually I see a lot in common between um, WeFox and GetSafe. What's really interesting is, can you use the app to engage customers, right? Can you use the borrowed relevance of the things that customers actually really care about? Their cars, their houses, their wealth, their health. Can you use that to create that engagement that then gives you a better relationship and indeed a better understanding of that customer's risk. So actually, whether you're a broker as a business model or an underwriter, having that direct relationship with the customer and the data is super, super interesting. I think the advantage a WeFox has is, as a broker, they can bring in more underwriters and probably price better and give each individual customer a better choice of policies than if if you're just an underwriter. So actually, I think the WeFox strategy is probably going to be more successful in the long term because you can give customers more choice in developed markets like Germany or the United States. But I think the key thing is that customer engagement that you get from having the app. Because if you don't do that, the danger is Google or someone else, Ping An, comes in and takes stands between you and your customers.
0: I'm not saying a word to that. I was almost bait then, Benjamin, I'm not saying a word to any of those things. <laughs> the, um, but if we go full circle, and actually maybe what you're saying is m- you heard it here first. Are you saying we Fox and GetSafe should be combined as one to go after things in a better way in an end-to-end fashion? And if we go full circle, um, one of the things Getsafe plans to do with its funding is finally get its own insurance license. Sound familiar, Mark? Yeah, it does. I think
3: it's 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 a well-trodden sort of path. and and if you look at it, then the challenges is and and obviously we obviously we're we're investigating. Um, The the challenge is where in the stack do you sit and how much um, of the stack do you take and um, what's your relationship with your reinsurers? I'll tell you an apocryphal no-name story actually on that basis relating directly to this, which is um, we were speaking to the head of reinsurance at um, a well-known U.S. listed insurtech in some or other segment and um, they, he identified this new moat, which is basically, I, I won't use our language, I'll just moderate that a bit, but really rubbish underwriting. And the thesis is they've stuffed it up so badly that their insurers have pulled up the bridge and no one can follow them into the market. So, you know, I think the complexities of, of running a risk capital are perilous in many ways. Um, I think the temptation, uh, if you wander back, look, look. Capacity is 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 hard. Capacity is hard uh, in in commercial motors. It's extremely hard. We we, you know, I think we got quite good at at figuring this out, and, and we will be making some announcements shortly in that regard. Um, and then for us on the commercial side of things, you know, uh, where we are setting up our own risk carrying entity again because our customers generally prefer rated paper even having a mix of rated and unrated in in the fronting stack is is very difficult for us so our path is more on the reinsurance side or somewhere um you know further back in 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 quota share, which is quite interesting in and of itself, because then you have access to alternative pools of capital and it all gets really interesting. And then with the data that we have actually, because the reinsurers are so shielded from the perils that they are ultimately responsible for, we think we've got a very interesting proposition there. If you take some of the other sort of um, well-known UK uh, motor insurtechs that all set up Gibraltar carriers um, and are now mostly writing on their own paper, um, because they're not well exercised in underwriting are really not having um, the underwriting discipline isn't there. And um, the uh, underwriting performance is generally not great. I think that there's some going to be some interesting blow ups that will happen. I think it's very tempting, but it's also super difficult and we are very, very wary of
0: it. It's a really interesting point, And I think the two things you've highlighted for me are one, it's a path well trodden, therefore they can learn and see what others have done. But equally, their desire to do it by tw- by the end of 2021, given there's about 70 days left in this year, may be a tall order. Net-net, there's more customer choice, so it's good for everyone.
2: If I can just say one comment on that, if you don't mind, which is that to me, it's not really a buy. It's not kind of incumbents versus startups, right? There's this huge gray area where you've got what nominally look like, yeah, they are licensed carriers or whatever, but just, um, you know, look behind the scenes. And there is very traditional capital in the form of reinsurance, like Mark said, with quota shares and other things. And even in some cases, a lot, a lot of health writing, which is not a bad thing. Exactly. And other investors who've been in the insurance industry um, forever. So I think that there are new ways of kind of putting your family together as it were but i think that the idea that we had initially that it's going to be completely new standalone companies versus the industry that's been there for hundreds of years um is not true and interestingly enough in the fintech space you know you've seen a lot of companies like cabbage or whatever right which are actually now kind of partnering with with some of the more traditional traditional companies so it's it's very debatable whether you're you know like in i mean lemonade and next insurance whatever are
0: not divorced from the traditional industry in, in any way at all. couldn't agree more, and, and both many of the insurtechs are invested in by some of the tr- tr- traditional CVCs or otherwise, um, but I'm also seeing many of the insurtechs being the new distribution for some of the legacy or, or incumbent products. So I think what I love about insurance most is the collaboration coming together rather than fighting all the time. So that we're all out there to fight for customers' attention and what's not, but I do think the collaboration here is stronger than than any other industry. I'll I'll wrap this one up. Good news for all and congrats again. Get safe.
1: Benjamin, over to you. So uh, the last story we've got a bit of time to cover is uh, from the UK. And this is the insurance scheme that's been designed to cover live events has been hit by concern over conflicts of interest. This has been reported in the Financial Times. So brokers and event organisers have criticised a delayed uh, UK government-backed £750 million insurance scheme that's designed to carry the UK's events industry through the pandemic. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, said at the start of August that the scheme would help support live events threatened by any further lockdowns or um, COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, It was meant to be in place from September to help organisers plan for a busy reopening schedule of live events from corporate conferences and award dinners to music and comedy gigs. But multiple market participants have said they've yet to see the final policy wording and the lack of progress has left event organisers unsure whether they can secure insurance coverage at all. And worse, a number of insurance brokers, which are obviously used by organisers to find cover, have also expressed dismay that the scheme has been handed to one of their biggest rivals to administer um, because the government's framework document shows it's been it's contracted Oliver Wyman, the management consulting arm of Marsh and McLennan, as the administrator. So it sort of rings a little bit like some of the sort of accounting firms, you know, involved in a lot of things. As such big professional services business, is that it gets a bit tricky. So I guess the story here is, you know, do we get to the point where the risk is so substantial, the risks are so uncertain that there are things that just can't be covered, that the industry can't. Pull coverage together Nigel I don't know if you've had time to look, to look at this story it's, you know it seems like a little bit too little too late is this, is it just too hard to cover these events
0: I, I sit here with three different hats on one as an end consumer that can't wait to get back to the theatre and to gigs and events I think I've had Elton John tickets booked for the last 20 years I'm kidding. It's about four years. We were joking, my wife and I, that said my son was about eight when we first booked them, And by the time we get to actually see him, he'll be about 15. So he will be coming with us rather than than anyone else. So I'm a, as a consumer, I can't wait for these things to take place again. But we do so in the backdrop of, you know, significant rising cases in the UK again, with the NHS chief exec coming out and saying, we've got to put masks back on and everything else. So we can't forget that this event, this pandemic is very much here and now and still amongst us and insurance is there to cover unknown events this is very much a known event and one of the reasons I think that this has struggled quite a bit is exactly that point we're, we're trying to put a insurance policy or cover in place for something that we know has a very high propensity to happen If I said to Mark, hey, ensure this fleet, and by the way, they've never had a driving lesson and they can't drive, Mark's algorithms and Mark's common sense would drop in and go, "Uh, no, very, very quickly. I just refer them to my um, autonomous vehicle partners and (laughs) say, you don't need drivers. That's what they (laughs) do.
3: We'll
0: we'll give it a few years and we might get auto chewing doing some of these folks. Exactly. But I think, look, this it's almost too known. So what we're actually looking for is maybe less of an insurance policy and more of a what scheme can we put in place to make sure people can get back to work and we can start to do these events safely whilst balancing them all out. And I think it's a really tough call to make. And I don't worry, you know, my former shop of Deloitte, I don't worry one iota about the Oliver Wyman link at all. I think that's just trying to find unnecessary links. To be fair, I mean Oliver Wyman, Deloitte, and all the other folks out there in my mind hugely well qualified to try and bring these things together and shape and and everything else. So I think that's just trying to create a story from from nothing in that particular point.
2: I think also for me, when you when you were describing this, I w- I agree with you. Nigel, I wouldn't be worried about that perceived conflict of interest. That's just trying to bitch about a competitor, not even a real, but. Um, I think the government kind of has a conflict of interest because they're trying to put this thing in place um, and then they're the ones who decide if there are lockdowns and stuff, right? And it seems to me like, um, you know, a way to say, oh, well, you know, it won't it won't be that bad if we have to decide something. But I think there's a problem there and it's trying to, you know, we're all concerned about the amount of money that governments have been giving to people um, d- during COVID, but it seems like uh, they're trying to sort of get away from that. But again, I think it's too late in, it's too late in the progress of, of COVID, right? Honestly, to me, it seems like this should be some sort of government scheme, quite honestly.
3: Yeah, it, it, it rings sort of slightly to me in terms of the stuff that we're seeing with some of the large transportation network companies where we're doing some uh, interesting work to try and shift those uninsurable pieces that they carry on their balance sheet, you know, um, and because they're uninsurable, um, if you look at the uh, at, at Lyft and Uber's filings, they're each carrying in the region of a billion on their balance sheet, which is basically the, the risk that they're covering. And uh, because it's so known, it is going to happen. People are going to crash. And, and I think it, what, Nigel, you were saying earlier um, as well resonates very much with that. But who who is that um, backstop of last resort, I guess, is the question. In this instance, it's certainly not the entertainment industry. They've got... No money left to put into it,
0: right? And it's true for so many industries. These unfortunately were towards the end of the list. If you look at the total cost of covid to the u k. government at the moment, it's roughly what three hundred and seventy billion pounds. It's a huge amount of money that at some point we're going to have to pay back and you prioritize schools and uh, and hospitals and everything else first and foremost, lots of these things feel like they're at the the end of the list. But then you, as you say, you compare it to, Uh, pool re for people that are living in flood zones. You compare it to what we've got coming up around cyber and how we're gonna cover the cyber capacity gap as an industry going forward. So there's lots of these things that will be out there. Maybe you do end up with pool re, cyber re, pandemic re that doesn't just cover um, live events, but has a much broader scope to make sure that in the event of a next pandemic, and these are supposed to be one in a hundred or one in 200 or one in 500 type events, but if you look at natural catastrophe, like wildfire, or whatever, whatever, they were also supposed to be one in 250 or whatever else. And now they seem to be one every year. The world is literally, if you look at climate change and COP26 coming up, the world is, you know, from burning through to many other things, they're happening every single day. And the insurance industry alone can't be left to hold the baby. When you look at the Road Traffic Acts scheme in,
3: in the UK, I mean, that was put in place a while back and you can use that as a parallel. It blew up. You know, that's the bottom line. It blew up. Um, Everything was drained um, and it blew up. Too many claims. So whatever you put in place now is going to blow up if the claims exceeds whatever the capability or the capacity is.
2: So I absolutely agree with that. And the other thing is that you know, with natural catastrophes, the government is not going around making volcanoes happen or like setting, no, fire, exactly. setting fire to things, right? <laughs> the problem here, I think, is you've got the you've got the sort of you've got the actual trigger potentially of the pandemic, how many cases or whatever. I mean, maybe they need to go to some kind of parametric, but then there's a big issue about how accurate the numbers are, because as I say, I'd be concerned about underwriting anything which is based on, and bear in mind a lot of the government are my friends from university, right? But based on, you know, whether a few folks... At checkers or whatever, decide to put in more restrictions or or do a lockdown or, or or whatever. So and that's you may find you know I'm sure they wouldn't do a lockdown in Texas for the same amount of cases that maybe they would in in, in London or, or or in Germany or whatever, right? So um, I do think that aspect is pretty difficult for the for the industry, but but there may be some sort of offshoots that that could be used, yeah, as a kind of backstop to some kind of pooling scheme.
1: Okay, so yeah, I, I think you're right, Susan. There are some events where it's so risky. Um, the, the risk is so obvious and so present that the government almost ends up having to be the backstop. All the events just have to be cancelled, and it's, it's really unfortunate. Hopefully, Nigel, you'll get to see Elton John at some point, but it may not be soon.
0: I can't wait. I, he's, I've been a long-standing fan of Elton John, and I'm now looking forward to taking both the kids to see it, actually. So every silver cloud has a lining. We're going to move on with the show, and as we come to the end of it, a few stories we didn't have too much time to cover, but still deserve a shout-out. Benjamin, would you like to start?
1: Yes, so our first one is that Barcelona-based insurtech startup WeCover has closed a €2.3 million investment round to expand internationally. Uh, So WeCover is a Spanish insurance startup that specializes in embedded insurance. It's just closed this, this round led by Norta Capital. The business was only founded in 2019. Uh, It's created what it calls a plug and play insurance solution that lets companies embed customised insurance products seamlessly, always a bit wary of that word, uh, into their sales processes both online and offline. It's currently offering a wide variety of insurance products from mobility, retail, payment protection to health and pet insurance and its mission is to try and enable every company to offer insurance products seamlessly Bundled with the the products that they sell. So this is a super interesting story. Um, you know, we've seen a, a number of sort of embedded insurance and insurance as a service startups springing up over the over the last few years. There've been a couple of more established European businesses that have been moved into it. I'm not surprised to see the excitement here. Yeah, it's, it's a relatively small round. I think we're gonna see a lot more businesses um, like this coming into the market. So, you know, well done to Wecover. I look forward to seeing them then growing and succeeding. And I think we're gonna see a lot more like this coming.
0: Fantastic. My one to add here is Progressive Rockers, back to our previous story, Progressive Rockers launched DIY COVID insurance scheme to underwrite tour. This from Meridian, the British progressive rock band has asked fans to underwrite the 150,000 pound cost of insuring a UK tour, as musicians are forced to find alternative ways to counter the risk of catching COVID-19. So right back to our previous story and about how we're gonna cope with this. The band said it had raised more than half of the target within a day, asking its support base to cover the cost of canceling the tour that kicks off in Hull next month. The money which will be held in escrow in a PayPal account will be returned to the fans if the tour completes as planned. Ian Mosley, Marillion's drummer, told the Financial Times that it was a sad situation that the band was not able to rely on long-standing insurance partners, which had forced many artists to postpone shows again due to the risk of cancellation. And again, reading the article and seeing the news on this, you saw or we'll have all seen uh, Phil Collins cancel his three day tour because of um, COVID as well. So this is almost self-insurance or crowdsourcing insurance for folks that want to go and see the band and get back to some level of normality. And a smart way to do it, why not? If you're prepared to sp- spread the risk, not the virus hopefully, but spread the risk uh, amongst your fan base to get out there again and, and cover the cost of doing these things, maybe it's a path back to some level of normality soon. And it's, as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's still here, it's still prevalent. Interesting times ahead, let's see where that one goes. And finally, what we've all been waiting for Aviva reveals its quirkiest insurance claims in its 325 year history. This from Yahoo Finance. An elephant squeezed into a van, a publican who hurt his leg while ejecting a drunken customer, and a husband who accidentally cooked his wife's jewellery are among the most unusual claims that Aviva has ever dealt with. Aviva has trawled through its archive to take a look at claims dating back centuries. As it approaches its 325th anniversary on November 12th, 2021. Some of the quirkiest claims include a vicar who was awarded £120 after falling while playing leapfrog in 1875. They've not met my kids, clearly. A man who injured his arm when his finger was caught in a woman's corset in 1888 as he was trying to save her from drowning. And please add on that last piece. And in another case, a London hotel keeper was awarded £25.10 in 1878 after being hit in the eye with a cork after opening a bottle of champagne. Clearly not one for the Instagram generation. Where do we even start with this? Mark, you said you had some funny claims to share as well. What's your first one you want to share? I'll hand straight to Susan. It's less about claims and more an interesting story that we heard from
3: one of our insurance partners who was complaining about uh, telematics and, and why it doesn't work. And um, they'd gone through a process with telematics, uh, uh, with with another telematics offering and uh, gone through all the risk management stuff and worked really hard at reducing harsh braking with one particular driver who had a super high incidence of harsh braking. And um, they thought their their intervention program was working unbelievably well. This is a taxi driver in New York medallion. And uh, so when, when they, after a week, almost disappeared and they got hold of the driver and said, look, we, we want to learn lessons. What happened here? And um, the driver said, um, yeah, I just stopped breaking for
0: Orange Lights. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think
3: the claims bit comes after that
0: piece. Oh, my. Oh, my. Susan, what have you got to add to our quirky claims?
2: Well, funnily enough, earlier on when we were talking about harsh breaking, I was like, it's better to do harsh breaking than hit things. But anyway, well, what I was thinking about when you were um, reading that story is um, in the US, there's been a series of adverts for farmers um, insurance, which, as you know, is um, associated with with the Zurich Group. And it is like, uh, allegedly at least, real life, kind of like bizarre claims. And it's like a, a moose, as in the the animal, you know, um, put its head through the front of an RV. And then and there's some other ones, which now, of course, you ask me, I can't remember, but it's really hilarious that the adverts are very entertaining. Usually, adverts in the US are a bit boring compared to in the UK, but these ones are pretty good. So, kind of making a virtue out of quirky claims, uh, I think, is, you know, definitely the way forward in making insurance more interesting. Testing to people.
0: I I'm with you 100. What about you,
1: Benjamin? I was actually thinking the same thing. There's uh, there's been a couple of um, ones on TV in the UK. I think it's a Viva that's had them in those ads. So there was one where a woman crashed into a pet shop, and of course there were you know animals all over the road. And then the other one was this man who reported he rang nine 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 and reported that he'd just seen a man in armour. Running across the road, followed by a horse, and it was some reenactor—you know, some medieval reenactor—who'd lost his horse on the road and was chasing after it in a suit of metal armor. So, those are a couple of my favourite.
0: I, uh, I I love this space. I think year after year we've had some funny stories about the most unusual claims of that year. Uh, I won't go into them now, but they do—they do—they are a highlight for me each and every year. One thing I love about this is. Actually, the age of the company, 325 years, is a massive milestone. Um, the first policy was taken out on January 15th, 1697, and the first claim was paid on the 11th of May, 1697, when houses in St. Stephen's Alley, Westminster, were damnified by fire. So a wonderful story, and I think a, a lovely way to end the show for future insurtechs that are looking to be here in hundreds of years' time. So with that, that wraps up the new show for this time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Susie, can I start with you?
2: Gosh, okay. Um, So um, obviously, as far as what IFC does, um, we have our website, um, which is ifc.org. People often get that one wrong. And um, I am quite a bit on LinkedIn.
3: Fantastic. Mark? We've been pretty dark, actually. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very open to, to chatting to people. And then our website is, is www.humn.ai. That's human with reduced vowels.
0: You and Aberdeen Asset Management are all trying this new vowel-less technology. Oh, we, they, they went extra.
3: They, they, went extra. They, they went extra. They took two out. We just
1: removed oh, one. Oh,
0: dear. What can I say? Benjamin? I'm on LinkedIn and 11fs.com. And for me, you'll find me on Twitter at Nigel Walsh no vowels removed. Thanks to all of our guests today. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11 colon FS or InsurTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at InsurTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. See you soon.